Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. This is the podcast version of my true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. And on this podcast, I bring all the amazing experts from that show into the studio or talk to them remotely through the magic of technology in a longer format about the incredible work that they do and all the cool stuff that they've learned. If you haven't seen the show, we're going to recap everything. So don't worry, you'll be up to speed. It's going to be a great conversation. Um, This episode is airing right after our season finale. That just came out on True TV. But guess what? We, if you follow me on Twitter, you might have heard we just got picked up for a brand new season that'll be coming out probably around June 2017. No exact date yet, but it's going to be sometime around the summer. We're writing it right now, and it's shaping up to be really, really great. But if you need your fix in the off season, you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything or the Watch True TV app. Okay, so today's guest is Professor Dale Jameson, who appeared on our season finale. Adam Ruins Going Green. And on the episode, we talked about how climate change is a huge threat to the planet, um, but that our individual choices, the way that we normally talk about how to solve climate change, we're like, hey, you can just drive a hybrid car or pick up your litter or, you know, turn the lights off, stuff like that. How that by itself is not enough to solve the problem and how we need to make larger systemic changes. And here's the thing. Look, I'm someone who reads a lot about climate change, a lot about our effect on the environment, and I worry about it a lot. I don't know how to deal with it. I'm like, wait, if my individual choices won't be enough, what do I do? Is this, are we all doomed? When I, the first time I read Dale's book, Reason in a Dark Time, it really put the entire issue into perspective in a way for me that helped me understand what we could do in order to help the problem, what it meant that climate change is coming. And it made me feel uh, not entirely, well, like we say on the show, a little bit sad and a little bit hopeful, um, but it sort of put a lot of my work arrest and I really wanted to have him on the show so hopefully he could do the same for you guys um, and I know that we are living in a new political reality we are also going to talk about that reality's effect on our planet's future and on the climate uh, Dale is a professor of environmental studies and philosophy and the chair of the environmental studies department at NYU so he is eminently qualified to help us come to terms with all these issues we're thrilled he could join us from New York I'm so excited for it let's just get right to the interview Well, hey, I'm here with Dale Jameson. Dale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Adam. And for doing the show. Um, I uh, First, could, would you uh, fill us in a little bit? Because I think you have an interesting background as a climate thinker, um, because you also have a philosophy background. Would you sort of like uh, recap that for us real quick? Yeah. So um, I grew up in California, was always interested in the environment, went to graduate school, did very straight academic philosophy. When I got my first real job at the University of Colorado at Boulder, I started falling in with a bad group of people. This particular posse were climate modelers. (laughs) They they ride motorcycles? (laughs) Well, you know, they were pretty tough, these guys, you know, like dealing with that code, you know, 23 hours a day. And and they were running all these simulations about what would happen if we had a CO2 doubling and all this stuff. And it just seemed like 
science fiction and you started getting these predictions well that would happen this would happen and over the years it started happening and i just got more and more dragged into this stuff and it's one of these things that before you know it you know your friends drag you off and you got another job wow and and so you you your so your training is as a philosopher but you've been really immersed in the world of climate science uh and uh sort of the climate debate overall over the last couple years that's right. And one of the real advantages of being a philosopher in this business is that, as you know, going back to Socrates, philosophers only drink the Kool-Aid voluntarily. So the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the philosopher's approach to this is always skeptical, always from the outside, always saying, like, really? Are you sure? Have you thought about this? And so once you actually see what's happening and you f- feel the power of the science and you see it being acted out in the world, it just becomes really compelling. Right. And the reason I I came to your work was um, I was, you know, really grappling with uh, the issue of climate change last year and with our impact on the world. And I started to have this sense that, uh, you know, I had read quite a few books, quite a few articles. You know, I was really immersing myself in understanding, uh, you know, the gravity of the problem. And I sort of had this sense that, okay, hold on. Climate change is is coming. It's here already and it's coming. And uh, we haven't really been grappling with uh, with the ramifications of that, that I, I sort of I was raised in the you know 80s and 90s when it was really about stopping global warming. And, you know, it was the sort of Captain Planet ethos of like, hey, if we all pitch in and do our part uh, and, you know, we all pick up after ourselves and, and turn the lights on, turn the lights off when we go to sleep, we'll stop global warming. And I felt like a lot of people were still sort of operating under that general you know, uh, thesis, even if they didn't realize it. And I was starting to get the sense of, wait, our impact on the planet is inexorable and massive. And what do I do with that knowledge? How do I, how, how do I go forward? Like, how, how do we, you know, how does that affect our society? And your uh, book, Reason in a Dark Time, was the first time I read a book that I felt like grappled with the issue on that level. And I guess that's what a, what a philosopher can bring to it. Yeah, well, you really described my motivation in writing this book. I mean, we we have these kinds of narratives in our heads, you know, which is, oh, you know, the world is getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, but we can all pull it out in the nick of time if we just pull together. And, you know, it's a, it, it makes for great movies, but unfortunately the laws of nature tend not to be very interested <laughs> in our narrative forms. And I felt it was really time for somebody just to sit down and tell the story really bring out all the places where we've already made mistakes that are not really reversible at this point. I mean, it can be better and worse. We can cope or not cope. Lots of room for lots of constructive action. But this idea of saving the planet, stopping climate change, uh, you know, that's from some other movie. Right. And and that's what I mean, just to I guess we're just sort of recapping the end of the episode here. But but what I really took, yeah, from your book was that the you know, I had this sense of, oh, wait, it's too late. Like I already live in the apocalypse world. Right. <laughs> like like that, that's sort of how I felt. So. So wait, do I do you give up? What do you do under those conditions? And your framing is no, there's no. And please, you know, correct me if I'm if I'm paraphrasing at, at all or simplifying too much, but that that there is no saving the world. There is no, uh, you know, last moment and do or die. And then if we fail, it's die and we should all give up. There's just look, there's a future coming. And through action today, we can make that future better. And that's always a worthwhile 
uh, and you know sort of mandated uh, um, goal from a from an ethical perspective. Is that is that about right? That's right. I mean, people live in the world. We're an extremely adaptable species, and we do our best when we're trying to cope with change, and we do our worst when we think the world is frozen and it's going to be like this forever. I mean, if you think about what people have adapted to in the second half of the 20th century, I mean, think about what happened in Europe at the end of World War II or Japan after nuclear weapons or China after the revolution. People always are in a state of becoming, always needing to go on, always needing to, needing to make meaningful lives whatever change is going on around them. So in that sense, our challenge is no different than the human challenge has always been. What's sad is that this is a case where we're inflicting it on ourselves for reasons that are really, really dumb. <laughs> well, what are those, what are those reasons? Why are, we, why are we inflicting it on ourselves? Well, you know, we've created this machine that's powered by fossil fuels that right. everyone knows is a losing proposition. I mean, we dig up coal, we destroy mountaintops, we poison water, we poison air. And by the way, we change the climate for everyone in the world for the next few centuries. Everyone knows you can't go on forever doing, doing that. But somehow we, we, we have a very hard time stopping it because there's so much momentum in the machine that it makes most of us who really care about this feel just powerless on a daily basis. Right. And and that's why I think that distinction of the machine is the important part. And that's sort of the, the first point that our episode tries to get across because the uh, you know what? What I have experienced again, growing up uh, in America, and you know, in a in a you know environment where environmental causes were important, and you hear that in the air a lot. There's so much emphasis on individual responsibility. It's what you can do. You can buy a hybrid car. You can you know stop getting plastic bags, and uh, you know, etc. I mean, I remember times in my life where this is <laughs> it's embarrassing, but I I almost became obsessed with like reducing the number of plastic bags. I was bringing home from the supermarket like I would, you know, carry this is in Brooklyn. I would like carry, you know, canned food home in my jacket in order to not get a bag. You know, that's what sort of what I was spending my mental energy on. And um, what I realized the more I read was that that sort of individual action is a, a little bit of a uh, we're, we're tilting at windmills a little bit when we uh, do that, because if everybody if everybody in America takes those individual actions, that's still not going to solve the problem because the problem is systemic. It's this machine and this entire way of life that we've built on a foundation of fossil fuels like every everything in our world, everything we touch is sort of made of fossil fuels to an extent. And so it's the. It's the mechanism of the machine in total uh, of our manufacturing and uh, uh, distribution and energy system that, that that needs to be changed. Like the premises of the machine needs to be changed. Is that uh, – am I right about that? That's, exa- that's exactly right. And you've also Whew. identified one of the problems we have as Americans. Now, we have a lot of cultural resources as Americans. But one problem we have is this kind of old puritanical idea that life is about purity – And so Mm. we tend to approach all of our problems in a way that if only I had clean hands, the problem would disappear. And the problems of a world of 7.3 billion people who all are consuming a lot or want to consume even more are just not going to be addressed that way. Right. Man, wow, what a clear way to put it. I've noticed that a lot in, uh, you know, just my my daily, um, you know, interactions with uh, friends who care about issues, right? Like that, that's almost the uh, 
you know, I, I feel that I know people who are like, well, I'm vegan, so it's I'm fine. I've done all I can. You know, it's sort of that point of view. Not all vegans feel that way. And it's a wonderful thing to be a vegan. But there's there, part of the appeal is this idea of, well, I'm not contributing to this problem. Therefore, I'm like I'm morally pure. And I have trouble not thinking of it in that way myself, where I. Uh, you know, if I if I read an article about climate change, I'm probably, you know, I'll be like, well, I'm not going to have meat tonight because then I'll feel a little bit better about myself. Like it becomes about this moral purification rather than uh, addressing the real issue. The dear self always intrudes. As a famous philosopher, Immanuel Kant once once said in talking about morality. But the vegan example is a wonderful example because you know, we have this sense of identity around our food choices. I'm vegan, I'm vegetarian, I'm plasticine diet or whatever it is <laughs> at any given moment. Now, you know, now what we know is that really we have to reduce our meat consumption because meat consumption is one of the drivers of all kinds of destructive global change. But as I like to tell my friends, it's much better to get everyone to not eat meat one day a week it's much better to do that than it is to get 10% of the world to become militantly and obnoxiously vegan. Right. I suppose that's a goal we could try to pursue through, um, uh, I don't know, education or something along those lines. But the, po the point being that uh, for all of these issues, a, a wide scale like sort of cultural change is going to move the needle, whereas individual change is not. Um, and, and it even, even makes sense like you can't ask you know, other people to be as morally pure as yourself. Like you can, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to be a vegan. I'm going to take a cloth bag to the supermarket every day. But there's a lot of people, you know, in America who, if you had to meet them in face to face and say, hey, it's really important that you be vegan and you bring cloth bags. They're like, hey, man, look at where I live. I can't, you know, I can't do this. You know, I can't make this moral choice you're making. Um, you know, I don't have the privilege that you do that allows me to make it. You know, that's very clear as well. We can't just project our, you know, if, if it was all about individual moral choice, Choice, it would require everyone to agree and to be able to carry that choice out, which is just not possible. The one thing that is really important about individual action is that it allows us to change ourselves and to align our own actions with our own beliefs. That's where individual action matters. It's not about projecting it out onto the world and sort of getting everyone else to follow us because we're the ones with morally pure beliefs and everyone else is inferior to whatever it is we may be thinking and doing at any particular moment. But, from, but we shouldn't think that individual action doesn't matter. It matters because it's the path back towards taking some responsibility for ourselves, not for the world, but for ourselves from this place of kind of apathy and dejection, which unfortunately many, many Americans seem to live in these days. Oh, that's real. That's really wonderful. So, it, so it's more about it's more about sculpting yourself, and uh, yeah, <laughs> that individual choice is is about the self in a profound way, but it can also be a positive way. Exactly. So let's talk about um, the uh, a little bit of the science, uh, because on the show we sort of bring you in in front of our big globe to show us how the global problem works and how the how the system works. Um, and uh, we sort of describe it as what we tried to do on the show was get back to the basics of, uh, look, here is how climate change is happening. We're extracting energy from the earth in a number of forms. Uh, we're consuming it. That creates emissions, and that is uh, warming the earth inexorably. And there's a 
uh, sort of agreed upon limit past which we we ought not to go the the two degrees Celsius limit. Can you sort of uh, for those who aren't familiar with it describe the uh, describe that? Sure, but I'll unfortunately begin by complicating it a little since we have a little more time to try to do that here. Please, I would love that. So the way to think about the Earth is that is that it's essentially the place, the center, the locus of a of a number of different cycles, and, and not just carbon, but also things like sulfur and things like nitrogen and so on. But if we focus on carbon at any particular moment, there's a certain amount of the Earth's carbon that's in the atmosphere, a certain amount that's in what we call the biosphere. It's stored in plants, trees, other living things. A certain amount that's in the oceans certain amount that is in the rocks, that's in the geology of the planet. And there's more or less kind of a rough equilibrium. Now, through time, when you're thinking about billions of years and hundreds of millions of years, these things go out of whack, and these really bring about massive changes on the planet. So these are natural events that happen in that way. But what's really unprecedented about what we're doing as human beings is we're essentially digging up all of that fossilized carbon that's in fossil fuels, and we're putting it in the atmosphere. Some of it also goes to the ocean, some goes in the biosphere, but it basically it's concentrating in the atmosphere. And that's really what is driving the climate change that we're now just beginning to experience. Now, the problem we have is to try to explain what that, what that means to people. I mean, because this is a question of how much of that carbon gets into the atmosphere, but also how quickly right? Because if that carbon is moving into the atmosphere very, very, very slowly, that gives the system time to adapt. But what we're doing is we're putting a huge amount of carbon there extremely quickly by geological standards. So how do we measure that? How do we communicate that? Well, what we've tried to do is to try to translate that into a number that expresses a degree of warming. And so what we say is, well, Two degrees centigrade warming of the Earth's mean surface temperature, that's really the danger zone that we really don't want to go beyond. But that number is to some extent artificial because any destabilization of this system carries risks and is going to, and brings about changes. It's just that this two degrees provides a kind of you know rough heuristic, like uh, when your mother says, you know, really you shouldn't do this. It's, you know, you're getting into a danger zone when you, when, when you do that. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to get hit by a truck even if you don't do that, right? The world is that kind of place. And it doesn't mean that if you exceed it a little, you know, that the system won't find some way of stabilizing. So that's the role that two degrees plays. It's kind of a placeholder for trying to communicate something that's really quite complex and incredibly dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, it was sort of a rallying point that was put together by the – sort of climate science community and the, uh, I, I assume the sort of international community that's trying to address this issue as uh, sort of this is this is our goal, we're trying to stay under this, and in broadly under this is okay, uh, not okay, but better than going over it, which is closer to catastrophic. Right. And really the way we need to be thinking about this is that every time I drive a car, every time we dig up carbon and we burn it and we combust it, Essentially, that gas, which has been very nicely sequestered in the Earth's crust, thank you very much, it'll stay there forever, very peacefully, but it's now going to go in that atmosphere and it's going to affect the climate that we have and it's going to hang around for 100 years and maybe even as long as 500 years. So in that sense, it's a continuous buildup in the atmosphere 
that's dangerous, but we just want to throw up some red flags when we go past some particular points. Right. And the thing that really struck me was the was the fact that the amount of carbon already in the that that is we're sort of ready to take out of the earth that's owned by, you know, fossil fuel companies and governments. Um, and that is, you know, factored into their stock prices and uh, that they're saying, hey, we're going to dig this stuff up in the next however many decades and and, you know, sell it and, and burn it for energy. That's enough to way blow past that that goal. Right. Right. We're on a real collision course between the business plans that some corporations have and Earth's business plan for having a stable environment that will support human life. These two things just do not go together. And one of the really sort of nasty kind of paradoxes of this whole thing is probably most of our listeners are aware of the fact that we're losing sea ice, that the most intense warming is actually happening in the higher latitudes up in the Arctic. Now, what happens is when you lose that sea ice, when you start losing the permafrost and so on, there's actually all these oil deposits, oil and gas deposits that become much more accessible to energy companies precisely yeah. because of the thawing that's occurred because we've burned so many fossil fuels. So it's a it's a kind of negative feedback situation that we're in. Positive feedback is the technical term, but negative feedback <laughs> in the sense that it's leading to us being screwed. <laughs> and so what's the... I mean, look, I don't want to ask you to to make, uh, you know, predictions, right? Because predicting the future is is kind of a fool's game, except in, in very broad strokes. But, you know, what are the two different timelines that we're looking at here? The one where we manage to rebuild this machine in order to, uh, you know, leave all that carbon in the ground and the one in which, you know, no changes are made uh, very broadly. Well, I think we're going to stumble into a future where at some point we will almost certainly get out of this fool's game, which is using fossil fuels. Whether right. it's going to be in 2040 or 2050 or 2100, I don't know. But at some point, reality comes crashing in and, um, and, and you're just not going to keep doing this. Now, a lot of damage will be done and a lot of risk will be taken. And the really deep political question is where that tipping point is going to go is going to happen where we really do get off this machine and and start to create something new yeah it's the it, i've thought about that a lot it's the the question is when do we have the when does everyone in the world when do the climate denialists you know go away when when are we in the you know in the uh, w when does the evidence become so incontrovertible when are the results so bad that uh, action is simply politically essential, right? Right Right now it's politically difficult and it's been, uh, you know, in order to make progress. But uh, if the situation gets bad enough, it'll be politically impossible not to make changes. But the question is, will that be too late? Will if we like if we wait for the effects to hit humanity hard enough to uh, force change, will uh, you know how bad will things be at that point? Like what changes will we will we, we be locked into already? Because there's a there's a lag in the system, right? The amount of carbon that you put in today, you don't see the effects of that for a couple decades, and so we'd already be on a bad course, right? Right. And I mean, and I think a lot of this goes back to what you were talking about uh, earlier in the conversation, which has to do with the fact that corporations build into their business plan so they're going to burn all this carbon, you know, that, that that's enough to really totally destabilize global climate. But the people who are putting together those projections are not fools. I mean, they're reading newspapers, they're reading books, they're reading articles. They have children and in one side of their brain, 
they may know that this can't actually go on according to the projections that they're putting forward. And we all tend to live in these kind of contradictory spaces. Uh, and that's why when change happens, it can change incredibly quickly because the contradictions just get resolved and the system pitches in some direction or another. I mean, there are a lot of not very good analogies you can think of here, but one had to, has, is the, you might think about as the collapse of communism in 1989. In one sense, this was a system that looked completely stable. I mean, lots of military power, totalitarian political control, all of that was going on. At the same time, there was kind of this internal feeling among many of the people, including many of the power people in the system, that this could not go on forever, that this was a shaky and unstable system. And eventually, that contradiction resolved into no more. It just can't survive any longer. And the whole system crumbled like a house of cards. And at some point, that's going to happen with the energy revolution. It's just going to happen so quickly and become so universal that it's going to be shocking. It's just that whether it takes another 20 years or 50 years or 100 years yeah. for that to happen, I don't know. It's very funny that you put it that way because that also reminds me of I, – I have previously heard our um, fossil fuel system compared to uh, the system of slavery in, in early America that, you know, it, it's that, – that the problem of fossil fuels is as deeply rooted in our economic and social system as slavery was insofar as – you know, slavery was the economic engine that built the country. If you lived in America at that time, there was no washing your hands of it. You were using products, you know, you, you were benefiting economically from the existence of that engine. And it took a, you know, <laughs> but it did end quickly, right? It took a war, but it, but it ended, it, it did collapse all at once. But it was also a fundamental reshaping of the economy of the entire country to begin on entirely different premises that were not based on, you know, the the exploitation of an entire people for free labor. Um, and that it's that scale of a change to our economic system. Do you agree with that? Or? I, I agree with that completely. And in some ways, a, 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 a slightly cheerier version of the slavery story <laughs> I would love a cheerier version of any of this. <laughs> well, yes, wouldn't we all? So, but it really goes back to the British. When the British abolished the Atlantic slave trade, uh, they actually controlled the slave trade. I mean, it was their ships that were moving the slaves from, from Africa to North America and, and the Americas generally. And it was about 4% of their GDP. And essentially, I mean, it took a lot of political work and a lot of political structure. But that system could have gone on more or less indefinitely but essentially, they just said one day with an act of parliament, we're giving up this 4% of our GDP. We're not going to do this anymore. And the reason that act of parliament happened that ended the Atlantic slave trade for the British was because people, citizens, were boycotting. They were petitioning. They didn't want to be associated with the product of slavery. The campaign was often called the blood sugar campaign. And what it did was to bring people to think of when they saw sugar, put it in their tea. They thought of that as being closely associated with the blood of the slaves who produced it. And we mm. need something like that with carbon, you know. When I put something in my car or even when I'm using all of the carbon-based goods and services that you were talking about earlier, we need to see the destruction in the consumption of those, of those goods. And when we come to actually see it, you know, then we'll actually decide that we're going to go out and do something about this. 
Right. It just strikes me that the true irony of, of the real problem with climate change is that the effects are delayed, right? Like, I mean, we're starting to see effects that, you know, if you read, you know, a popular science publication, it'll say, okay, well, you know, the, the temperatures in the Arctic have skyrocketed and let's talk about the California drought and storms and things like that. But for the average person, it's, you know, it doesn't seem, you know, hey, one extra hurricane every couple decades is, is not that noticeable yet. Um, and so the, the effects lag after the cause so much more than, you know, uh, uh, say slavery or communism, right? Those are things where the, the downside was happening right in that moment. That seems to be the, the thing that human society is, you know, like our democracies are relatively responsive. You know, when, when a problem is really bad, change is often made, you know, um, uh, it may be a little bit too late, but, you know, that is the history of, you know, America, like, uh, you know, huge, huge systemic problems haven't persisted for centuries and centuries, slavery being the longest one, but it was finally corrected. Um, but it seems as though, you know, having a problem where the cause lags behind the negative effect by 50 years uh, is really sort of the system is having a hard time dealing with that. Right. And so now this gets back to something I said earlier, which in a way I want to kind of, you know, change up and make a little more complicated. Earlier I said, we're taking all <laughs> these risks with the planet and we're being really dumb, dumb, dumb. And that's true. But it's also true that this is the hardest problem humanity has ever dealt with. Right. So, so I mean, for, for the reasons that you were, you were giving us, I mean, it's exactly right. This is a really, really devilishly difficult problem. I mean, it's a little bit like once you break the China, putting it back together is just a whole lot harder than not breaking it in the first place. Now, the reason our responses are dumb or the reason I characterize them as dumb is because there are really some pretty simple steps that we can take that would actually begin to get us on the right path. And the first and most obvious one is just put a price on carbon. I mean, it goes back to your plastic bag example, right? The way to deal with plastic bags isn't have poor little Adam, you know, wandering around Brooklyn with his, you know, <laughs> with his army pea coat, you know, stuffed with canned goods, you know. Uh, the way to do it is charge little Adam five cents for every bag, not just little Adam, but everybody who goes to the store. And you'll see, right. you'll see people start behaving, you know, responsibly using cloth bags and so on. We've got to do the same thing with carbon. As long as emitting carbon is free, uh, we're just not going to stop doing it. Right. And it's and it's such a bizarre thing that that uh, we know that this is the case, but that people can emit carbon just right into the air. It affects everyone. And there's no uh, there's no price for doing it. It's the uh, you know, the sky is sort of everyone's communal toilet. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it doesn't have to it really shouldn't have to be a political issue because, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, putting a charge on carbon, that's a tax and it gives money to the government. Well, yeah, the government could keep the money and do good things with it that you believe in, like education and trying to reduce poverty. But if you don't like that kind of government, you can give the money back to people. Uh, but still, by putting the charge on emitting carbon, you're still then going to disincentivize the behavior. And that's really what you want to do in this case. Right. Well, let's let's talk about why, you know, a carbon tax failed in the in the U.S. I, I remember there was an effort for it um, in a in a second. I want to quickly talk about the the Paris Agreement, um, because that's we also have you discuss that on the show and why, you know, after we paint this very bleak picture on the show that we've sort of expanded on here, why that's a tremendous reason for hope. Can you go into that? Well, 
if we let's go back to 1992, which was the Rio Earth Summit, which was the largest gathering of heads of state that ever occurred on the planet. And at that Rio Earth Summit, uh, two different things happened. One is some treaties were signed, including the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that was very important. But even more important than that was the creation of the global environmental movement. There had been environmental movements in North America, in Europe, in South America, but people got together at that point and recognized that activists who were working in Asia and activists who were working in Europe were really all trying to do the same thing, working mm -hmm. in their local neighborhood. And the Paris Agreement, in some sense, still represents the globalization of that concern. So the architecture of Paris is that each country basically pledges to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by some percentage, by some date, but then it holds itself up to examination by its own citizens, by the citizens of the world, and by other countries. And so you get this kind of positive feedback situation of interlocking pledges and review that without anything being mandatory, just the communication, the social pressure, the possibility of naming and shaming is quite likely to get us onto this downward trajectory. And so if we break up Paris, what we're doing then is we're really breaking up that mechanism that can actually result in behavior change. Here's a kind of little example. Suppose that uh, me and four of my friends are overweight or we drink junk food or we drink too much or we do all those things in my case, whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> now, if the five of us get together and say, you know what, uh, we're all going to make these promises to each other about how we're going to change our behavior and we're going to meet once a week and see how, what we've done to live up to those promises, the chances are pretty good that we're going to make some progress that way. Yeah, But if I say, well, I'm going to do these things, I'm going to drink less, I'm going to eat less junk food, I'm going to lose weight, but I, I'm not going to talk to anyone about this. I'm just going to do this and hold myself responsible for doing it. We all know what that's like and where that goes. Right. It doesn't happen. And so what Paris does is really provide, if you want to think of it this way, is a kind of global support group for moving all the people of the world together into this post-carbon future. Huh, that's a really wonderful metaphor, and it it, uh, it I I like it because it's less. I I actually hadn't heard it phrased quite that way before, um, and it makes it sound like a more natural process once you have those mechanisms in place. That it's less about the individual. It's less about mandating specific indiv individual steps and more just setting up some amount of of global cooperation that at least we haven't seen before. And um, I I loved the message that you brought to our show, which was that. I, I know that uh, people have said, OK, even the Paris Agreement won't take us to, uh, you know, below that two degree limit. Um, but the point is that this is the most massive effort that's been tried thus far. Um, and we can continue to expand on it. That At the very least, it's it's an incredibly positive first step. Yeah. And I mean, and ultimately, when we're dealing with the global environment and our insults to the global environment in terms of consumption and and waste, I mean, you know, there's no sure things. I mean, nobody can say, you know, this isn't like, oh, if you only do this, Johnny, then, you know, you will live a happy life and go to heaven. I mean, nat nature isn't giving us that guarantee. So, mm. so that's why the path is really important to get on the right path and the more sustainable path, wherever that's going to go, because we know the direction that we're in. We know where that's going to go. And it ain't pretty. 
Yeah, so it's more. It's more about. Uh, it's almost like to go back to your uh, your unhealthy habits example. It's more about just trying to make your habits better rather than worrying about your goal weight. It's like I'm I'm going to you know try to exercise a little bit and cut down on the junk food and you know just focus on taking it a day at a day at a time because there's no guarantees that I'll you know make it under 180 pounds. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know what's going to happen if you don't do those things. Well, I'm here talking to Dale Jameson. We'll be back in just a moment, so please stick around. What do Maria Bamford, Jad Abumrad, Dick Cavett, Phoebe Robinson, Dan Deacon, W. Kamau Bell, Brooke Gladstone, and Andrew W.K. have in common? They've all been speakers and performers at past MaxFunCons. Every MaxFunCon is a murderer's row of amazing stand-up comedians, thoughtful cultural leaders, and skilled artists. And MaxFunCon and MaxFunCon East 2017 will be no different. Visit MaxFunCon.com for dates and more information and to grab your ticket before they're gone. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Professor Dale Jameson, who teaches environmental studies and philosophy at NYU. Well, so let's talk about the the elephant in the room, which is our which is our new president and um, uh, the effect that that is going to have. Um, I know that a lot of folks are worried about that. It certainly seems that depending on when the, uh, this is going to come out a couple of weeks after we record it. But so currently right now they're in the phase of making appointments. And it certainly seems that to my eyes, the appointments that have been made are are about as anti, uh, you know, climate as you can get that it's a, a sort of phalanx of. Uh, climate change deniers in general. Um, and so I understand you said before we started rolling that a lot of people have been asking you for your take on this. Um, and uh, I, I imagine just people stopping you in the street and shaking you by the shoulders and saying, Dale, what, what's going to happen? What do we do? Like, it's just like, like suddenly, it's just, you know, after November, after uh, uh, the election, just everyone's like, where's the nearest climate scientist who can tell me? My God. Um, so uh, uh, what what is your what is your overall uh, take if you have one. Yeah, well, first of all, what you say is exactly right. I mean, this is about the worst band of rascals you could possibly imagine for dealing for dealing with this problem. I mean, um, you know, people have different views about different cabinet appointments and there's political disagreements, you know, may not like the policies of one or another, questions about competence. But the man who's been selected, Scott Pruitt, to direct the the EPA, I mean, this is somebody who does not believe in the agency he's supposed to administer. I mean this goes right. beyond climate change denial. I mean I mean this is this is like take care of my house. Oh, you know, saying that to a guy who's had a history of trying to burn it down. I mean it, it <laughs> right it just doesn't make any sense. Now yeah. the now the question is how all of that is going to translate onto what really matters, which is the build, right. the build up of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And and here, something that has traditionally been a bad thing can be somewhat kind of a helpful thing, which is, for reasons we've already discussed, Adam, it's been very difficult to figure out where the levers are to really affect that curve of the buildup of gases in the atmosphere. I mean, we do this, mm-hmm. we do that, we make agreements, we talk, but still it goes up. And that's because what's driving that are a whole bunch of things, you know, policies that are taken in different states like California, in different countries like Germany, 
because of different decisions firms are making about their investment priorities and so on. Right. So there's a sense in which, you know, the momentum is bad, uh, but it's not under push-button control by a particular government bureaucrat. I see the the number of causes that is so, the number of causes being so large, which is part of what's been the pro- made the problem intractable to begin with. There's so many players, so many forces, so many systems causing the number to go up. That means that in the same way that uh, that one president couldn't eliminate it with a with a stroke of a pen, another can't just do the opposite. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. So that's that's not a lot of relief, but in, I suppose in this <laughs> in this context, it is some relief. Now, yeah, well. Go ahead. Sorry. Now I've got. I mean, so my bigger concerns are first, are, are first of all, on the climate issue itself. If there's going to be progress on this issue, nothing has really changed in the sense that it's really going to come from people. It's going to come from divestment movements. It's going to come from civil society. It's going to come from me talking to my friends, you talking to your friends, and all of us sort of, you know, that whole process we were talking about with with, with Paris. I mean, that just has to continue even more intensely than ever. And that's where real change can come. The other concern that I have is that we've become so focused on climate. And I'm, again, someone who's been working on these issues now for well over 30 years, that there's a lot of other environmental values that also may well just get flattened in this new administration. Uh. And we may have so much relief that, for example, they don't kill all the renewable energy programs that when they sell off the public lands, for example, or they don't enforce the Endangered Species Act, we may hardly notice because we're so relieved that they haven't been as bad as we had feared on climate. So I think this really requires 24-7 vigilance from everybody who cares about the environment, which really is everybody. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask specifically about the uh, Paris Agreement, um, because I know Trump uh, you know, said at one point in the campaign trail that the U.S. would withdraw from it. Um, what are the various uh, – this will come out still before Inauguration Day, so we won't be scooped by reality on this one, I don't think. What are the various uh, scenarios and how would those affect – the Paris Agreement. You know, if the U.S. Right. withdraws or or says we're not going to fill on our you know our uh, commitments, does the whole thing fall apart, or do China, India, the EU, you know, still keep trucking along uh, with their commitments? The whole thing isn't going to fall apart because the Paris Agreement is basically draws on the energy enthusiasm and domestic politics of each individual country, and so pe- people won't be happy that the U.S. is you know, gone over to the dark side, and it's not going to make anything any easier in terms of their domestic political challenges. Um, but the whole thing is, isn't going to collapse. That's the first thing to say. We're now, just, it would just be sort of the one, the one guy in the, in the five man, uh, you know, diet and exercise club. One guy goes off the diet and, and keeps, <laughs> and, and keeps living the unhealthy lifestyle. And everyone's like, oh, Carl, come on. Yeah. We be a part of the crew here. Was this supposed to be a, <laughs> we're supposed to be improving ourselves. That's right. And we know you'll be back okay. eventually. It may take another four years, but you'll be back sometime. So, okay. So that's, I think, what's likely to happen with Paris. Now, in terms, okay. of, in terms of what the options are to the new administration, there's essentially three different things that he can do in terms of the international climate regime generally. So one thing he could do, which is what I think he'll do, is to stay in Paris and just not play very well with people. Right. So that would be like the guy saying, I'm still going to meet you at Friday nights where we talk about these things, 
but I'm not really going to make any promises and I'm not going to listen much when you do and I'm not really going to do much, but I'll still... He's going to show up drinking a milkshake. Exactly. (laughs) But I'll still show up. (laughs) This is what I I think is likely to happen because in a way, you don't get a lot of bad PR for doing that. You didn't withdraw from anything. You're You're still in some way in the game. Sit on your hands. No skin in the game, no skin out of the game. Just we'll do nothing. That's right. You don't have carbon on your hands in this case, right? So the second thing he could do is make a big deal about withdrawing from Paris. And I think that's what he's least likely to do because, first of all, because of the way the treaty's written, it would take four years. And so the moment that the U.S. withdrew would be about the time he's trying to get reelected. And that becomes a political issue then. And as we've indicated in talking about Paris, there isn't a lot to withdraw from, in a sense. It's not like, oh, they were making us do all these terrible things, and now you know we're not going to do them. The thing he could do, the third option, which is the scariest one, and I don't think it'll happen, but it, it, it needs to be out there, is he could withdraw from the entire framework convention on climate change, the whole agreement in the first place. Of which and, that, and that, to be clear, that that is the earlier general agreement that uh, set the stage for Paris, that's sort of like the overarching international agreement that uh, uh, just sets up a framework for international cooperation at all. Is that what it is? Exactly. And and that could be, he could withdraw from that with one year's notice. So it could happen very quickly. And in terms of a certain part of the Republican Party and his base, that would carry huge symbolic value. You know, that's sort of the equivalent of withdrawing from the United Nations. I, I was about to make the same comparison, yeah. So. Uh, well, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, it's a little hard to say, but I mean, that would, it's hard to say because these, um, uh, uh, honestly, the, you know, it's one thing to neglect climate change, but these uh, these appointments seem so aggressively anti-climate change or, you know, anti the, the issue of climate change. They seem almost uh, they, they seem almost sort of vengeful about it, you know, that it's uh, uh, and, and that's the that's the part that is almost hard to wrap your head around because there's you know, there, there's the issue of saying, ah, well, I don't really believe the science, you know, but then to believe that the you know to want to sort of do away with the science or do away with the with the progress um is such a strong negative reaction you know like i don't uh like i I, it's hard it's almost hard to understand the motivation i understand if you're an oil executive and like hey these these uh regulations are interfering with my bottom line but um for the average person to be like you know, it's hard to imagine why someone would be like, "We got to get out of this international agreement on climate change." You know, <laughs> like it's a it's a strange bit of motivation. Well, here's I mean, this is about as far into the political weeds as anyone should go at this moment. But here's what I think Please. is really happening, for what it's worth, is we're used to the idea that presidents choose cabinets to carry out a policy that they're committed to, and they're responsible for the decisions that their cabinet maker, uh, cabinet members make, and so on. I think Trump's management style is much more like the kind of Louis XIV management style, that he he has a court and there are people in the court that want different things and have different interests and so on, and he'll favor some at some times and others at other times. And who he's favoring is going to, I think, depend enormously on his approval ratings. So mm. if the you know, so the guy he appoints to run EPA may run wild, as I think he will, the first year or two. And I think if that's popular, Trump will say, great, run wild. 
And I think if it's not popular, he'll say, who is that guy? Get him out of here. You're fired. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, don't use his catchphrase. Um, <laughs> well, so so let me ask you, I, I sort of have two, two broad questions. Um, the first one is in terms of creating a, you know, sort of a global climate movement, because you've talked a lot about how what really matters is people talking to each other, public pressure, you know, this sort of general cultural change. And, you know, we compared it to those, uh, uh, you know, those, those sort of uh, large changes in other societies that that came about from public pressure. But um, what I've noticed is that it's very difficult to get a public uh, any sort of public movement behind something as large as the Paris Agreement, even in terms of, uh, you know, the environmental movement in the U.S. In the same week that everyone or the same month that everyone sort of worried that, oh, my God, Trump's going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which is this huge, uh, you know, this huge issue. The biggest environmental issue right now is the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is a very important issue. But it's also such a it's you know, it's a uh, it's a smaller project. Right. Like that is I've noticed that it's very that it's. We, we sort of uh, have a have a relatively easy time rallying people around uh, a specific project like that that is in very stark terms as that one is and has a very uh, big impact on a uh, particular community. Um, but when it comes to this large scale revolution that needs to happen, it's hard to get people to go to that march because the as we've discussed, the causes and the effects are so on such a long time frame and they're so diffuse there's so many of them you know and so uh that that strikes me as a problem with addressing this issue and i'm just curious what your thoughts are on that no i think you're exactly right and um you know the rational solution here or, or at least a rational first step would be what many other countries have done which is to put a price on carbon that would require legislation that's not going to happen. First of all, our Congresses these days don't actually ever pass any legislation of any sort. We'll see whether that changes in the new Congress, but they certainly won't pass this legislation. So what that means is, is that this carbon economy in America will have to die a death by a thousand cuts. And those cuts come from many, many different places. They come from from particular states passing laws um, that restrict the use of carbon. It comes from greater mileage standards for automobiles. It comes from stopping pipelines being built. It comes from divestment. All these things, no one of which is in some way that important, all effectively together collectively raise the price of doing business in this terrible way in which we do business to the point where it makes the transition easier. And that's so in that sense, I mean, this has really got to be the direction, I think, for the next four years, along with, you know, periodic big events that just keep climate emergency on the agenda just as an idea, as a form of words, as a slogan. Mm hmm. So it, it is those small, those small issues like that. I don't want to say the Dakota Access Pipeline is small, but those individual uh, issues, the uh, focusing on them, we just need more. We just need more action around such issues. Um, we need like a, a thousand uh, uh, protests of that sort. Right. And, you know, this and, and again, in a way, we sort of benefit from the complexity and diversity of climate change impacts. So, for example, people are having to deal with sea level rise, you know, what's called nuisance flooding in Florida becomes a big, right. a big political issue for, for local people. And then people go, why aren't you doing something about it? And the mayor says, 
what am I supposed to do about climate change? And, you know, climate change becomes an issue in that community. Well, then you still somehow have to try to deal with the damages and impacts. So it's coming at people from lots of different directions, and it will continue to come from more directions and more intensely. And that that altogether is going to be quite substantial bleeding at some point. And again, this is against the background where I'm convinced that a lot of the Republicans who don't take strong pro-climate policy positions, they're not really climate change deniers. It's They're just basically conforming to the political orthodoxy of their party. And at some point, it's just going to collapse in the way that communism collapsed or that in many circles, the opposition to gay rights collapsed. I mean, um, I just think it's going to take enough cumulative bother for that to happen. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's not entirely, uh, what I like about talking to you is that you make me feel a little bit sad and a little bit hopeful at the same time. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, let, let me just ask a final question. Um, I think one of the hard things for me has been uh, the transition between thinking about our effect on the planet as being something stoppable and, you know, we can live in harmony with the planet, etc. And my new realization that, you know, human life affects the planet so profoundly in ways that we can't entirely control, you know, that there's we're creating a new, you know, mass extinction just through the just through being here and having there be a couple billion of us here. Even if we solve climate change or we make a lot of progress for ourselves, our effect is still so massive. And I find that often hard to deal with on a philosophical or ethical level, right, that, you know, our presence is creating such a massive change in ways that we don't like. And uh, I know that's a very big question to ask you to, to ask you to answer in the last in the last minute of the show but um do you feel that we need to sort of reorient our, our way we we think of ourselves or, or the way we think about humanity's place on the earth well let me give you the big answer and then the small answer so the big answer is yes and if we can get past this horrible period we're in now and trying to deal with climate change and the sixth great extinction and so on we really do need to think about how to restrain both our numbers and our impact on the planet. And mm. it could be that in the 23rd century, when people look back, we'll, you know, we'll have done that. I mean, maybe it'll go the other way. I don't know. But it may be that this is an incredible learning period, sort of in the ways that slaughtering 60 million people in the first half of the 20th century kind of sobered people up about having wars in the second half of the 20th century. Right. Now, that's sort of the big answer. The small answer is this. I think we need to really change the way that we think of our relationship to the planet because most of us think, just without even explicitly thinking the thought, that nature is kind of static and changeless and the idea is for us to live in harmony with it and that's kind of the natural state of things. But actually, nature is quite raucous and given to all kinds of change, whether being caused by humans or not being caused by humans. And as a result, people have to change with nature as, as, as well. And that change can be rewarding. It can be devastating. Sometimes it's caused by people. Sometimes it's not. It can take a lot of different forms. And I think for me, the great analogy is growing up in San Diego, I grew up surfing. And I think of our relation to nature being like a surfer's relationship to the ocean. Uh. which is no matter what you're doing, half the time you're getting you know, the stuffing beat out of you by the ocean. <laughs> and half the time you're having these transcendent, sublime experiences where you feel so tuned in with the ocean and so at one with the ocean. And what you know is that neither of those are permanent states. 
it's always a state of change, of flux, of trying to anticipate, of trying to adjust, and most of all, just digging the fact that you can be doing this at all. Wow, Dale, that's so wonderful. Thank you. You, you. Honestly, I come in thinking about this issue with so much worry and and thoughts fluttering around. I was honestly just was up last night worrying about climate change, and and you. So just doing this interview has made me feel better. Um, uh, and and it's it really helps give me a wider perspective on the issue. I hope that uh, it did the same for our listeners. And and thank you so much for for talking with us and for the work that you do. Thank you, Adam. Thank you once again to Dale for coming on the show. Folks, that is what you get from a philosopher. A climate scientist can tell you the facts and figures. A philosopher can help you feel better about it, tell you what you should feel and what you can do and what, what ethical action is incumbent upon you, which honestly, uh, that puts my my heart at rest quite a bit. I hope it did for you guys too. And that is it this week for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show. We'll be back next year with new episodes. But hey, look, there is still such a thing in this day and age as reruns. And if you flip to True TV on your cable package, I, you, there's a good chance you may see an episode of the show. Or you can check it out on TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything or the Watch True TV app. Until then, see you guys in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.